Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast. Bombs over Belgrade, part one. We come to perhaps the most controversial topic that we'll come across in the timeline of the podcast. The late 1990s fighting in Kosovo. It's conflict that would see NATO end up launching airstrikes on Belgrade itself, that would see the eventual and permanent downfall of Slobodan Milosevic, and, more on topic, that would see massive shifts in football and the eventual removal of the name Yugoslavia from the world once and for all. It would tie in war in Albania, secret service intrigue from the West, economic calamities and, eventually, crimes against humanity. And it would happen with conflict between the regions that arguably started the collapse of Yugoslavia in the first place, Serbia and Kosovo. One note at this point. This and the next two episodes will refer to FR Yugoslavia a lot. Officially, it would be FR Yugoslavia involved in the war and not just Serbia, especially as Montenegro would see some military installations targeted by NATO. Come the final episode of this little arc, the Serbia and Montenegro thing will be getting explained, but I just wanted to clarify that straight out because I have had some people get in touch with me just saying, why are you calling it Yugoslavia? It's just Serbia at this point. Technically, it's not. Um, it is um, the Feder Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, so FR Yugoslavia, as opposed to the Socialist Republic of Yugoslavia that we had uh, a decade prior. Technically, it isn't Serbia and Montenegro. We will get to it um, in two and a half episodes' time. <laughs> in previous episodes, we've mentioned how, during the Yugoslav Wars to the north, Kosovo remained relatively quiet, given that Yugoslavia itself was rather preoccupied with the wider-scale conflicts that were already going on in Croatia and Bosnia. It wouldn't, however, be the case that Kosovo was actually completely quiet, and much of that would be due to Adam Yashari. Yashari was more or less genetically predisposed to fight Serbs, raised in a family that had been guerrillas in the past, and where most children got fairy tales, he was raised on war stories. In 1991, he would join a small-scale insurgency against Yugoslav forces, undergoing military training in Albania itself before returning to Kosovo and committing acts of sabotage. As things went on, he and his brother Hamez would be surrounded by Yugoslav forces with seemingly no way out before the local population flocked to the area, forcing the police out and immediately elevating Yashari into the role of a cult hero. Yashari would then spend the next few years hot-shotting between Albania and Kosovo, launching multiple attacks on Yugoslav infrastructure and police, and turning his home village of Prakats and the wider Skenderai municipality into essentially a no-go zone for the Yugoslav police and army. While political efforts would go on to attempt to find Kosovo's future, led initially by the likes of Yashar Salihu and Shavit Halili, Adam Yashari was the fighting face of freedom for Kosovo, while they stayed slightly more in the background. Out of their efforts came, sort of, the Kosovo Liberation Army, 
the UCK. This brought together three strands of Kosovan nationalism. Those like Yushari, who didn't have an ideological thought and who were merely continuing a generational conflict with one strand of it. The others would be the LPK, which can be thought of as the communist Dardanianist strand, funded by emigres and founded in the early 1980s. And the LDK of Ibrahim Rugova, which was the nationalist nationalist strand, formed in reaction to Milosevic's crackdown of the late 1980s. Of the three strands of the movement, by the time things escalated in 1997, only the LPK harboured any intention to unite Kosovo with Albania, with the LDK, which originally did want unification with Albania, abandoning those hopes after both Albania's experience and also seeing the, U the UCK move in on their territory and their declining relevance. We'll come to the Albanian experience in a moment because it is quite important to go through. In the very shorthand, you can think of the Kosovan nationalist movement as the arms of the UCK, the contacts and cash of the LPK, and the baseline popular membership of the LDK, all working towards a common goal, but unlike Slovenia's broad base of parties towards independence, Kosovo lacked someone who could play the system in Belgrade and instead contained a bunch of people who had an overriding interest in shooting Serbs rather than talking to them. Where Slovenia had Kushan to broker with Milosevic, Kosovo had Rugova, who was running a government in exile as the Republic of Kosovo, and who Milosevic was ultimately never really going to ever seriously entertain. What then drove the Kosovo nationalist movement from a political movement that came with some fairly low-level violence attached into becoming a Kosovan war that would drag superpowers in. Given we've just mentioned it, let's start that journey with what was going on in Albania at the time, because what was happening in Albania explains two key aspects of the war in Kosovo, where the UCK got all of their guns from, and why the LDK abandoned any concept of shifting Kosovo from the embrace of FR Yugoslavia into that of Albania. We went on a tour through Albania's history, and through Kosovo's as well, in episode 57. So, for any background on Hodja and the interesting version of the communist regime that he ran, hop back to there for some context, but we'll pick up where that episode left off in 1988. On Hodge's death in 85, his chosen heir, Ramiz Alia, picked up a state that was fundamentally broken. While there wasn't unrest, there was a general apathy towards the concept that the state was actually capable of change, and a slow awakening of what limited intelligentsia there was, that not everything was going as it should be. Alia's policies were simple. The slow opening up of the economy, rebuilding relations with neighbours who Hodge had spent decades needling, relaxing some cultural strictness, but then also ensuring that the press were as censored, if not more so, than ever. However, the pace of this change was all slow, and the price of rebuilding relations with the international community was to release a lot of prisoners who were in prison for opposing the state, albeit 
That's a very, very broad charge if you know anything about the Sigurimi. And the price for opening the economy up slightly to take advantage of Albania's tourism potential was to allow young people in Albania to see that there was another way of doing things, a better way. Now, all of what's about to follow should be framed with two things in mind. The first is that Alia comes out of the fall of communism quite well on the face of it, because he did recognise that change was needed. What he wanted to ensure was that he had a very firm leash on the pace of it. He felt that he, and the party of labour as the communists were called, could ride out whatever change was coming by ensuring that the change was gradual. The second part, thing to have in mind is that Alia also had the benefit of seeing what happened to people such as Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, meaning specifically that some people who stand in the way of sudden change are liable to find themselves experiencing their own sudden change from living to not. Small regional protests would go on throughout out 1990 before really kicking off in the student communities in Tirana in December and resulting coming out of that in the first multi-party election scheduled for the following spring. At that point, there was little in the way of organised opposition and less in the way of them being allowed any sort of coverage. While it was a fair election in terms of how it was actually conducted on the day, even if the scales were massively tipped in favour of Alia's party of labour in every other area, Alia retained power with a convincing electoral win. However, opening up to plurality only served to speed up change, especially as the main opposition, the Democratic Party, had hardly done badly at the election, all things considered. The House of Cards of the Albanian state fell with great speed, but there was a problem. Many of the Democratic Party hierarchy were formerly communists, to the point that, even post-election, some were still wearing communist uniforms and going around in government vehicles. So when the party did finally enter power in 1992 under leader Sali Berisha, it had numerous problems. Alia had gone because he couldn't keep the pace of change wanted by the public, yet those taking over for him weren't necessarily that dissimilar in their thinking and, crucially, had absolutely no real-world experience in running a party that was part of the international community, nor did they have the ingrained control of the state that Alia and the Party of Labour did. In addition, they were cut from the same cloth as the dictators before them, and while the Democratic Party had the word democratic in their name, actually being democratic when in power didn't come naturally. Sally Berisha, in particular, was seen as a person the West could deal with and a real positive at the start of his reign, but over time he turned into little more than a tin-pot mini-dictator who many in the West turned on. Hence why what happened a few years later happened. Now, what happened is quite difficult for someone who's not an economist like me to explain, but Essentially, Albania shifted from a command economy to a free market one very quickly and was led by people who didn't really know how the latter worked. What emerged into this unregulated market was two things. 
The first was a really large smuggling sector, um, helped, of course, by the fact that uh, Yugoslavia, on their border, were under international sanctions. So anything that was going into Yugoslavia through surreptitious means tended to go through the Albanian and Montenegrin border. The second thing was that we would see a myriad of get-rich-quick Ponzi and pyramid schemes that would even be backed by the government and ended up with investment from a large proportion of ordinary Albanians. The government's support of these schemes came in spite of being explicitly warned by the IMF that doing so was a really terrible idea. In 1996, not-so-free elections took place, keeping the Democratic Party in power, and the economic bubble kept on expanding, until in January 1997, it completely burst. The nation lost $1.2 billion, which is an average of $400 for every person in Albania. That might not necessarily sound like that much now, but you have to consider that this was in an environment where the monthly wage of Albanians was around $80. In the space of just over a week, almost every pyramid scheme collapsed. Everyone was left out of pocket, and everyone was mightily peeved, as people who suddenly lose all of their savings, completely due to a government-backed grift, tend to be. On the 16th of January, protests began, and around a week later, those protests devolved into violence, as allegations that the Democratic Party bigwigs had personally profited from these schemes spread, with much of what was now becoming a rebellion centred around the South, and, specifically, the city of Vlor. A hunger strike at the university there ended after rumours that the intelligence service were going to infiltrate and put it down, resulted in protesters staging a preemptive strike on the intelligence HQ in the city and nine people dying. Over 10 days at the start of March 1997, the government fell, as the army, who were rather fractious at the best of times, as a side note, it was the army who made sure that Adam Ishari would be released after an arrest in Albania in 1994, even though um, wanted to keep him in prison, the army refused to take orders to attack the rebels. While a full-on conflict didn't happen, the full-on withdrawal of government from life did for a short time. Military bases were looted, with millions of items going missing, some of those ending up in the hands of criminal gangs who had flooded into the anarchy that the rebellion had caused. Snap elections took place, putting the Socialist Party, the renamed Communists, back into power, and mostly that was that. The criminal gangs had a short shelf life with the public replacements for government, the Salvation Committees, restoring civilian civility and reintegrating with the government reasonably quickly. This was no civil war, but it came very close to it and did leave a dangerous legacy of criminal gangs throughout the nation. Now, when we started that little section, it was mentioned that all of that related to two key aspects as to why Kosovo went how it did. Aspect one is that the unification with Albania to formalise the ethnic ties completely died off for a time because of all this. Albania wasn't a nation to hitch your wagon to because they were in such an economic crisis and because their post-communist experience was clearly going very badly indeed. 
Aspect 2 is related to the looting of military bases. While some material found its way into the hands of criminals within Albania, a heck of a lot of it found its way across the border and into Kosovo. Aspect 1 shows us how Kosovo nationalism was at the beginning of the conflict. Aspect 2 shows us why conflict pretty much had to happen when it did. Quite simply, the UCK found themselves unexpectedly armed to the teeth and with a far greater capability in 1997 to run an active insurgency than they were at the end of 1996. That pre-1997 insurgency was pretty capable in the first place. While UCK actions had begun in 95, they only started formally owning up to things a year later. At around the same time, they also started having more organised meetings with Western intelligence agencies, particularly German, American and British agencies, who aided the UCK with training. The UCK was slowly getting more capable, more ambitious and more active, attacking Yugoslav police stations and other government buildings throughout Kosovo in early 96. That spate of attacks prompted the Yugoslav authorities to designate the UCK as a prescribed terrorist organisation and, in doing so, provided an instant boot boost to the UCK's credibility with the public, given that the message was now very clear that if you wanted to support Kosovo nationalism and oppose the Yugoslav state, then joining the UCK was the thing to do. The increase in the UCK's capabilities was obvious. They launched 31 attacks in 1996, 55 in 1997, and in January and February 1998 alone, 66. The UCK's argument, of course, was that FR Yugoslavia was already engaged in a campaign of ethnic cleansing within Kosovo, and while we'll move on to that in a moment, it's important to recognise the facts for what they were. The UCK were rapidly expanding their membership becoming more capable of successfully carrying out their attacks and, with the impact of the Albanian situation, more heavily armed to carry out attacks. They were also considered by a lot of people, including Western governments, to be a terrorist organisation. Part of this reason that this conflict is so controversial is that it's really quite difficult to think that FR Yugoslavia, or any other state for that matter, could or would have done much else at this point than attempt to squash the UCK at the start of 1998, given that they were getting to the stage of being a threat that would be impossible to control. That established, it's time then to look at the Yugoslav side of things and about the claims made by the UCK of ethnic cleansing ahead of the war. In previous episodes, lots of them, there's been persecution within Kosovo directly at the behest of Serbs and Milosevic. In the late 1980s, this mainly took the form of rolling back what Kosovo had been granted in 1974, in terms of removing any hint of ethnic Albanians from regional government, and subsuming Kosovo's legislature into that of Serbia's. Milosevic had, of course, built his entire rise to prominence on exploiting fears about Kosovo within the Serb national consciousness, and, as a result, his policy within Kosovo could only ever really move one way. With the rest of the world focused on events to the north, crackdown on the basic rights of Kosovo Albanians continued. 
By the end of 1991, only ethnic Serbs were allowed to be teachers. Schools were banned from teaching in Albanian. State-run institutions had more or less been purged of any hint of Albanians, and there were even incentives for Kosovan Serbs to have big families, with penalties introduced for Albanians doing the same. What followed was essentially a world of three Kosovos. The Serb Kosovo, which had all the income and jobs, and had refugees from the Kraina and Bosnia sent to Kosovo to try to tip the demographic balance. Rugova's Kosovo, rolling a government in exile to attempt to win international favour at the price of the emergence of the UCK. And the experience of the ordinary Kosovan Albanians, with a 70, that's 70 percent unemployment rate, poverty more or less guaranteed, and children who were frankly unable to attend school. Within FR Yugoslavia itself, Milosevic was dealing with the repercussions of a state that falls apart and spends years in war. In 1992 and 1993, the GDP of Serbia halved. But from 1994 onwards, the state began to get back on its feet. Economic policies were able to curb hyperinflation. Rapid privatisation of industries filled some of the massive holes that the wars had blown in the nation's budget. And the end of war in Bosnia had done away with many, but not all, of the sanctions the country had been under. That's not to say that all was rosy. Much like Albania, the impact of rapid change to the economy was disruptive, particularly as, during the war, the main people to profit were criminals. As such, much like Russia, the experience of privatisation was that a lot of money went into a few pockets, and that many of those pockets were of people who directly ingratiated themselves with Milosevic. To add to the issues, Milosevic's attitude towards the probity and honesty of elections was, well, pretty similar to his attitude around the probity and honesty of selling off his economy to the highest bidder. This saw major protests in late 1996, after local elections were clearly rigged. In Belgrade, and Nice in particular, opposition group Zayedno came out of these elections claiming victory. The local election commissions, whom Milosevic staffed with people loyal to him, refused to certify the results. This resulted in somewhere in the region of half a million people protesting across Serbia against Milosevic. After run and off protests that began on December the 24th, 1996, running through January 97, Milosevic got away with it, permitting the results in Nice and Belgrade to be certified, while also ensuring that no legal blame could be assigned to him for both the electoral irregularities and for some of the obvious human rights issues that came on during the protests, such as turning water cannons on protesters when the temperature was minus 10. Zayedno, an alliance of four opposition parties, promptly started incessant internal squabbling, and by the end of 1997, Zayedno didn't even exist anymore, leaving opposition to Milosevic more fractured than ever. Come the end of 1997, Milosevic had served his allotted two terms as president of Serbia and became president of Yugoslavia in a Putin-Medvedev-style swap that went slightly awry. Originally, Zoran Lilic was meant to take over in Serbia, but instead he lost the election of that role to Vojislav Seselja, the extreme far-right candidate, 
who, to be fair, held many of the same policies Milosevic, as Milosevic did, and who, with a National Assembly that was Milosevic-controlled, was both a bit of a useful idiot for Milosevic and also powerless to stop Milosevic just shifting all of his old power into his new role. With all of this in mind, we can set the scene at the start of 1998 politically before we go into the conflict itself in the next episode. The UCK have lots of guns and capability, and are a definite threat to FR Yugoslavia. Sobodan Milosevic has not just a history of repression of Kosovan Albanians, but has also just come out of riding through a challenge to his authority, looking as strong as ever, and also with the useful idiot of Cecilia in the Serbian government, who was someone who was always going to look for a reason to pick a fight with Kosovo. FR Yugoslavia would have the cause of preemptive self-defence. See George W. Bush for plenty of examples of that as a justification for conflict. And it also has the probability of success, with the window of that arguably fast closing. The UCK has the cause of self-defence and fighting against repression. And it also has the probability of success, given their training and arms were not likely to get much higher. All things needed were a spark, and not for the first time, Adem Yashari would be that spark. But we'll come to that in the next episode. In football, we'll also come to the 1998 World Cup in the next episode, and the goings-on in domestic football the episode after that. But we'll round this episode off with how Yugoslavia got to France 1998. On resuming international football, Yugoslavia appointed the legendary striker Slobodan Sandrac to his first managerial role in running the national team. As mentioned a couple of episodes ago, prior to being allowed back into international competition in 1996, they were able to go about playing reasonably high-profile friendlies against a mix of traditional allies like Russia and non-European teams such as Uruguay against whom they recorded their first home win in this form of Yugoslavia, thanks to a Savo Milosevic goal. When it came to going into qualification for the World Cup, Yugoslavia's obviously damaged FIFA ranking made them a bogey for any side who drew them, but they could have been given a few more difficult tasks than qualification group 6, which included both Spain and the runners-up of Euro 96, the Czech Republic. However, Yugoslavia's lack of being in Euro 96 came to their aid, as their first two group games, hosting Minnows, the Faroe Islands and Malta, took place prior to Euro 96 itself, and prior to any other group games, with their schedule very much backloaded. In their first three games, two against the Faroes and one versus Malta, they racked up 17 goals. But when the big games came, they rose also beating the Czechs both home and away, and managing a home draw against Spain to put Yugoslavia into the playoffs behind the Spaniards. There, they would meet Hungary. Now, it's important to note here that Hungary weren't bad. They had come second behind Norway in a group that featured Switzerland, who had been at the Euros, and Finland, who had a prime Yari Lipmanen. They had, however, only sneaked into the playoffs after a 91st minute own goal from Tepi Moylanen gave them a draw in their final game in Helsinki. Hungary were tough and lucky. 
and Yugoslavia absolutely demolished them. Within 10 minutes of the first leg in Budapest, Yugoslavia were 3-0 up through Birnovic, Djukic and Savicevic, before a Mijatovic hat-trick and a frankly superb team goal finished by Milosevic rounded off a 7-1 away win. Given that scoring a hat-trick in the first leg was clearly not enough, Predrag Mijatovic went and scored four in the home leg as Yugoslavia took pity on Hungary and only won 5-0 to round off a 12-1 aggregate victory in what must be the most one-sided playoff tie in UEFA history and a set of games that would confirm Predrag Mijatovic as one of the world's premier strikers. He would round off his club season that year by scoring the winner for Real Madrid in the Champions League final, ahead of a World Cup that Yugoslavia were going to with live chances of going deep into the competition. 1998 was going to be a turning point for Yugoslavia, one way or another. They likely couldn't have imagined that it would go the way it did. Next time on the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, while Yugoslavia went to France, the home front went to battle as Kosovo spiralled out of control. As always, thank you very much for listening. As always, sharing is caring. If there's anyone you think would enjoy listening to this, then please do let them know. Uh, or please do share on social media and stuff. I appreciate that um, <laughs> this episode and the two that are going to follow it are touching on topics that are very controversial and that um, some of my Serbian listeners <laughs> I'm sure may have something to say about. Um, but I hope you will see I've tried to be as even-handed as I possibly can be. Um, if your podcast service does allow reviews, please do leave a review, preferably a glowing one. Um, it all helps algorithms and stuff. Um, but otherwise, uh, it's easy to say thank you very much for listening, and I will catch you next time. <laughs>